The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're looking again this morning at uh, Genesis uh, 22. First two messages that I preached on this, we looked at the human side, uh, Abraham and his faith, his obedience, the challenge it must have been for him. Um, last time that I had the opportunity, the privilege of preaching, we looked, began to look at the types that are fulfilled in Genesis 22. I'll explain more about that in a moment. We will do all of those but the last one, and we'll finish that one up next week. Now, if you are a high-ranking official in the Pentagon, and you're working on top-secret intelligence data, you would come to a door behind which all of that work was, and there would be a newfangled kind of uh, camera that would scan your iris. It would look at your iris, and it would compare it to a... Uh, to its database to see if you are who you claim to be. More and more, the issue of identity and making certain of identity is pushing itself to the fore. And I think that's especially true after the September 11th terrorist attacks. The United States government uh, has uh, a quandary of dealing with our free and open society and the people that want to come in here, either uh, traveling for business or pleasure or even to immigrate, uh, to know how to ascertain at the border who the folks are. All of these agencies and others besides use something called biometrics. I didn't even know that word existed before recently, but biometrics is basically the measurement of some physical attribute of the human body. And in this application, it has to do with using that physical attribute of the human body to identify you. Uh, Certainly, law enforcement agencies have used fingerprints for a long time. The FBI has literally millions and millions of fingerprints stored in their database so that they can determine if people who have committed crimes in the past committed this crime this time. And uh, that is a biometrical measurement. The problem is, according to CBS's 60 Minutes recently, they did a report saying that, the, that fingerprints are not foolproof. Actually, there was a Japanese man who was able to prove by the use of crazy glue that he could get fingerprints off of a drinking glass and use it to fail some of these fingerprint tests. So more and more law enforcement agencies are looking to other biometrics, for example, uh, DNA information. And so they take from uh, people that are convicted of crimes DNA samples so that they can be a little bit more accurate. The problem is uh, when you come to a door at the Pentagon or at other places or trying to board an airplane, you don't have time to do a DNA scan. And so the uh, scanning of the iris is by far the easiest and the uh, most accurate. Uh, according to the information from Iris Scan, a company that makes these, uh, these machines, only one in 10 to the 78th time will there be a match from one eye to the next. What that means is there are about 5.8 billion people on Earth. Uh, if you had that number of planets with the same number of people, you would not find two irises exactly the same. And so for, with two seconds of scan, they can identify and match you. Now, you may wonder what in the world this has to do with Genesis 22. It actually, it does have something to do with Genesis 22. It really does. Because the fact of the matter is, as important as, as it is to maintain your identity across the Internet so that you, there would not be, you would not be a victim of identity theft, 
so that you can do some e-commerce uh, using your uh, a password, let's say, in a credit card over the Internet. As important as it is for immigration and naturalization service officials to know who it is that's coming to present the passport, as important as it is for Pentagon uh, uh, top secret rooms to only allow access to those that should be going in there. As important as it is for Swiss banks uh, operating with numbered accounts to know that this French industrialist really is the French industrialist who put the millions of francs into the bank. As important as all of these things are, they pale in comparison with the abhorrence of your soul. For what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, of all the approximately, and nobody knows for sure how many people have ever lived, but of all the approximately 10 billion-plus people that have ever lived, God must identify for us the one individual, the one man, who is the Son of Man and the Son of God, who is the Savior of the world. And in that one man, you must put your faith, you must trust in him for the salvation of your soul. Now, how will God do that? How will he target, how will he identify Christ for us? And the answer is, in Scripture, he has given us prophecy. And the prophecy targets and triangulates and identifies one individual who is the only one who could fulfill all of the prophetical pictures that there are of Christ. Now, there are two different categories of prophecy, as we've mentioned before. There are verbally predictive prophecies, such as Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. That's a verbally predictive prophecy, speaking of the life of Christ, how he would be our substitute at the cross, Isaiah 53. Or Isaiah 9, for to us a son is born, to us a child is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will reign on David's throne, etc. A descendant of David who would be the king of the world. But a second category of prophecy is typically predictive prophecy. And the way this works is that elements of Christ's life, elements of Christ's ministry, are acted out in space and time, recorded for us in the words of Scripture, and then all of them put together give us a picture of what Jesus came to do. And of all of the typically predictive prophecies you're going to find, the best is in Genesis 22. Now, last time we began looking at them, if you look at the outline notes, we looked at the first eight, and we saw that these eight elements... Were, uh, f- were laid out in history between Abraham and Isaac as God commanded Abraham to take his son, his only son Isaac, whom he loved, and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that he would show him. And so we looked at these eight, and as much as I would love to go through all eight again, you just have to get the tape to listen to those. But in these eight, there's a picture of the gospel, the father-son relationship. The fact that Abraham was Isaac's father, and just in the same way that God the Father gave his only begotten son for us. Secondly, that it was a predetermined, deliberate choice on the part of the father to do this. Abraham had three days, a three-day journey. He had all of the firewood to chop. He had all the preparations to make. And all of this put together showed a great deliberate choice on the part of the father Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. But that is nothing compared to the eternal foreknowledge of God the Father. How before the foundation of the world, God had determined to sacrifice his son, his only begotten son, for the sins of the world. We saw thirdly also that the father and the son left the servants behind and went on alone up on Mount Moriah. And so this is a picture of how the the Heavenly Father and the Only Begotten Son alone worked salvation. There was no other human with them. There could be none. It was the Father and the Son, a transaction from the Father and the Son that wins our salvation. Fourthly, we saw how Isaac carried his own wood himself. 
and how this was fulfilled in Christ as he carried the cross himself in the Gospel of John, the Greek being intensive, as you remember. He, bearing his own cross himself, went out, it says in John's Gospel. So also it was, uh, it was uh, borne out for us spiritually how Jesus was the sin-bearer of the world. Not only was he bearing the cross, but he was also carrying our sins on himself. Fifth, we saw the fire of judgment ready to consume Isaac. How God had commanded that he be offered as a burnt offering. The fire, a picture of God's judgment and of God's wrath. And while God ordained, as we see later, a blood sacrifice for Jesus Christ, he was not to be burned up. Yet, it was the fire of zeal in his heart for the temple of God that led Jesus to cleanse the temple at least twice. And that led him into immediate problems with the, with the powers that be at the time and led immediately to his, his death. As it says in John chapter 2, zeal for your house has literally burned me up. It's burning within me. And how Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath spiritually at the cross. And so we saw the judgment uh, in the fire there. Sixthly, we saw the death penalty being required. Abraham was not commanded to sell his son Isaac into slavery. He was not commanded to wound Isaac, but rather that Isaac had to be killed. He had to be put to death. All the wages of sin is death. And from the very beginning, there's been a link between sin and death. And so Isaac had to die. So also Jesus gave himself up unto death. He died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for sin. Seventh, we talked uh, very reverentially about the shocking moment of Revelation. At one point, as you saw in the account, Isaac did not know that he was going to be the sacrifice. Remember what he said, here's wood and fire, but where's the sacrifice? And how Abraham spoke to his son and said, God will provide sacrifice. But at some point, it clicked in. Oh, I'm the sacrifice. And that must have been an amazing moment of revelation for Isaac. And so we also spoke very reverentially that Jesus Christ and his deity was omniscient. But in his incarnation, the days of incarnation, he limited himself in space and time. He could only be one place at one time. That did not mean he was no longer God, but that was just something he took on himself. So also he in some way was limited in his knowledge. Uh, that makes sense in that Jesus was born an infant and he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. He knew nothing at that time. It says in Luke 2.52, Jesus grew in wisdom and favor and in stature with God and man. So there was a growing in Jesus. At some point, the Heavenly Father revealed to the earthly Son who had taken on a human body, you will die for sin. And that that revelation went on and on until the night before he was crucified, it came to a peak in the Garden of Gethsemane, when it says in Mark's Gospel that Jesus was astonished and he fell to the ground and he, he prayed and, and great drops of blood were dropping to the ground, God had in some way just opened up his mind and showed him what it would be like to drink the cup of God's wrath and he drank it to the bottom. Incredible. And then finally, coupled with that, we saw, eighth, that Isaac willingly yielded to death. Now, you have to read between the lines, but a, a young man, strong enough to carry all the wood of the offering, is strong enough to fight off an aged father if he had wanted to. A young man that strong is certainly strong enough to run away and get away, but Isaac wanted to do neither. Isaac willingly submitted to death. And so also Jesus, in, in my opinion, the greatest act of heroism in history, the most courageous act ever, he said, yet not as I will, but as you will. He desired to drink the cup. And our salvation is based on that act of obedience. 
For it says in Romans 5 and 19, Just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the glorious obedience of the one man, the many are made righteous. Jesus' active obedience. Oh, that's all just review. But look at the ninth type as we see it. And the ninth type is in verse 9. Isaac was bound. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, it should not trouble us that Abraham bound Isaac as though he was trying to get away or there's some kind of struggle. As we've already pointed out, if there had been any kind of struggle, Isaac would have won. It was not that, but rather, Luther says, it was not because Isaac was trying to get away or was weak in any way, but this is what was done to sacrifices. Abraham was just following the pattern. The sacrifice was bound. And so he was going to bind his son just as he was about to slay his son. Perhaps also it might have been an act of mercy to help Isaac physically to stay on the altar. We don't really know. But I can't imagine what it must have been like for him to bind up his own son, to lash his son's hands and feet perhaps with a cord, to just experience what that must have felt like for him, what kind of grief filled his mind with every cord and every knot. And as Abraham laid Isaac on the altar, what a picture of total submission to the will of God. What an incredible act of courage and faith for Abraham. Well, this prophecy, this binding of Isaac was fulfilled in a number of ways in Christ. First and foremost, I want to speak of the spiritual binding of Jesus. Jesus was hemmed in or bound by the will of God. He was hemmed in or bound by the scripture. He could do no other than die on the cross, and he knew it. As a matter of fact, in Luke 12.50, uh, he speaks in this way. I'm going, to, I'm going to read from the King James Version. In, in Luke 12.50, Jesus says, But I have a baptism to be baptized with. Listen. And how, how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Now, the KJV has the most accurate rendition of the Greek there. Basically, in effect, Jesus says, I'm like in a straitjacket until it's finally done. I'm bound by the word of God. I've got a baptism to undergo. He's clearly talking about his death. And, and the Greek word is used uh, later, Jesus speaks of Jerusalem being surrounded and hemmed in from every side by its opponents. Jesus said he felt that way by the will of God. Surrounded, hemmed in. He had no other place to go. Speaks in the same way of Jesus when he's, he's being crushed by a huge crowd and a woman subject to blood for 12 years comes up behind him unnoticed and touches the hem of the garment. And he said, who touched me? Who touched me? And uh, Peter said, Master, don't you see how the crowd is pushing in around you on every side? It's the same Greek word. So Jesus felt bound by the will of God. And this really comes down to the moment when he's being arrested. Do you remember what Peter did? When Peter drew his sword and was going to fight for Jesus? And Jesus told Peter, put your sword away. For all who live, the, live by the sword will die by the sword. And then he said, and do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will put at my disposal immediately 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? You see, Jesus was bound in by the scripture. There was no other way for his life to end. He had to die on the cross. So Peter, why in the world are you trying to upset the scripture path that God has laid out for me? Jesus was bound in by it. And what it must have been like for him. Uh, he gives little glimpses of it here and there. In John 12, 27, he says, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? 
Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You can see the sense of the, of the straight jacket in a way, the binding of Jesus. Not against his will, but just hemmed in by the word of God. Well, that's the spiritual. There's also a literal physical fulfillment as well. Isaac was bound by cords. Jesus was bound by cords, literally and physically. All four gospels mention it. It says in Matthew 27, 1 and 2, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So Jesus was literally physically bound and no question about it. The tenth type or picture of the gospel that we see is that Abraham was commanded to strike Isaac himself. He was going to be the one to put his own son to death. Now, last time I mentioned in Patrick Morley's um, uh, account of the father going on the fishing trip with the son in Alaska, you remember that account? The father did not want to leave the son, the young son, to die in the cold waters of Alaska. So though he probably could have saved himself, he stayed and died with his son. You remember that story? Well, it shows how incredibly difficult it is to watch your son die, to be powerless to save him. The same would be true of a son dying of leukemia or some other disease. The father feels powerless and it's a horrible experience as the father watches the son die and there's nothing he can do to save him. But I think it's even more horrible and even more difficult to watch your son die and choose not to save him though you could. Now you wonder what kind of father would do such a thing? What kind of father would, would watch his son die and have the power to save him but not do anything? For him. Well, when I was on the father-son retreat, I told the illustration of a Romanian pastor, Pastor Florescu, who during the time of the communist oppression in Romania was arrested for his faith, was brought in, and was beaten horribly every day. And at night he was put in a, in a horrible prison cell and they forced rats up. They, they, they had these large rats coming through this drainage pipe and they would harass him all night. So he had to stay constantly vigilant at night or else they would, they would uh, eat him, they would bite him especially the incentive of his, of his bleeding wounds. And then the next morning, they'd begin again. This went on for three weeks. What did they want from this pastor? They wanted a list of all of his congregation members. And what would they do with that list? They'd go arrest them and bring them in too and start to beat them and on it would go. He absolutely refused to give them that list. He would rather die than betray his brothers and sisters in Christ. That is until they brought in his 14-year-old son. And he started, they started to beat on the son with the clear intention of killing the son. And this man, broken down by lack of sleep, by physical pain, by torture, was, was wavering and said, I can't. He said to his son, I can't watch this anymore. I've got to tell them what they need to know. And the son said, don't do it, father. Father, don't do me the injustice of having a traitor as a parent. Stand firm. Because if I die, I will die with the words, Jesus and my fatherland, on my lips. Well, this incited the communists, and they went on and killed the 14-year-old son. Now, here's a father that had the ability to deliver his son and chose not to, because his son exhorted him not to, and because he knew all it would do is lead to more suffering and more death on the part of more Christians. How painful would that be for you? But harder still, to put your own son to death. And this is the very thing that Abraham was commanded to do. Not just that he was powerless to save his son. Not just that he had the power to save him but didn't choose to use it. 
No, no, no. He was commanded to be the one to do it himself. And this, in a very small way, mirrors what our Heavenly Father did to his own son at the cross. This is an astonishing thing when you stop and think about it. God the Father gave to his son the cup of his own wrath. He poured out his wrath on his son. Isaiah 53.10 says this. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was God who was pouring out his own wrath on his own son. Now you may think he did it, God the Father did it for the joy that was set before him, just like the son. Oh yes, he did. But don't think it was easy. You are emotional beings. The feeling you have for your son or your daughter is a dim reflection, you being created in the image of God, a dim reflection of how the Father feels for his own son. And our Heavenly Father is an emotional being. Do not think for a moment that it was a light thing for him to do that to his own son. And I see at least two indications of what the Heavenly Father was feeling at the moment that he was doing this to his own son. The first is that in Luke 23, it says, From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, an eerie and strange darkness came over the whole land, for the sun stopped shining. And then at the moment of death, the account is given in Matthew 27, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, and the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. It was not a light thing emotionally for the father to do this to his own son. But this is precisely what he did. And what Abraham was asked to do, he did. He crushed his only son, but it still wouldn't have compared because it was a spiritual crushing. It was the wrath of hell that the son experienced on the cross and the father gave him the cup. It's an astonishing thing. Eleventh, we see the shedding of blood. Abraham drew out the knife and he was set to slay his son. He was going to take that knife and plunge it into his son's body. He was going to shed his son's blood. Why? Because this is what the sacrifice required. Sacrifices in the old covenant were blood sacrifices. Blood sacrifice was the only acceptable gift to God for our sin. Later on in the Mosaic law, it said in Leviticus 17.11, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Later it said also in Hebrews 9.22, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. And so, Abraham was commanded to shed his son's blood. So also Jesus shed his blood on the cross. Jesus was not going to be suffocated. He wasn't going to be drowned. He wasn't going to be stoned to death. He was going to die a bloody death. His blood was going to be shed. And so it says in Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. In that, find your significance. In that, find your lasting joy. That God the Father shed his own son's blood for your sins. And it is enough for him. He doesn't ask anything more of you. Your works can't add anything to the finished work of Christ on the cross. The blood of Christ is sufficient for all of your sins, past, present, and future. That was what was shed at Calvary. 
12, look at the angel of the Lord. It's an amazing statement here. Look at verse 11 and 12. Just as Abraham reaches out his hand and takes the knife to slay his son, verse 11, it says, But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now who is this angel of the Lord? Who is the angel of the Lord? Well, generally speaking, angels are spiritual beings who are created by God to serve him. And so it says in Psalm 103, verse 20 and 21, Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you servants who do his will. That's what angels are. They're servants who do God's will. They're created spiritual beings. Angel is just the Greek word for messenger, somebody sent to bring a message or act as a representative for the king. Angels are now assigned to minister, it says in Hebrews 1.14, to we who are being saved. They are ministering spirits sent to serve you who are inheriting salvation. That's what angels are, and they regularly appear in the Old Testament in various ways. But the angel of the Lord is different. He speaks differently. He acts differently. He takes a different role than other angels do. He's treated differently in the accounts. We've already seen him appear in Genesis 16 in the account with Hagar. And I must say to you truthfully that I believe that the angel of the Lord is none other than the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Before he took on a human body, the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, spoke down to Abraham and stopped him from killing his son Isaac. In Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord, speaking to Hagar, said this, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. Well, angels don't usually talk that way. They say things like, the Lord will increase your descendants, that kind of thing. But no, the angel of the Lord says, I'll do that. I'll increase your descendants. They'll be so numerous, too numerous to count. And after the angel of the Lord is done with Hagar, remember what Hagar said? She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For, he said, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That's how the angel of the Lord is treated in Genesis 16. In Exodus 3, the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in the flames of a burning bush. And then it says, two verses later, Then the Lord spoke to Moses out of the bush, saying... Clearly, it was the angel of the Lord who was speaking to Moses, and the angel was God himself who sent Moses to Egypt. But even more striking is Exodus 23, 20 and 21. Listen to what it says there. It says, Behold, this is God speaking to the Israelites through Moses. Behold, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Now listen. Pay attention to him. Pay attention to the angel of the Lord. Listen to him and do what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion, for my name is in him. Now, I'm telling you that no other angel would have that said. My name is in him. He will not forgive your rebellion. Who are angels to forgive or not forgive? They don't do that. That's not their job. No one can forgive sins but God alone. But you see, the angel of the Lord is God because God's name is in him. But then, in this account, I think we have the strongest of all. Of all of the angel of the Lord accounts, this is the strongest. Look what it says in verse 11 and 12. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven... Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied, verse 12. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. 
Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now I know, said the angel, as though he is watching, he's assessing, he's trying to determine whether Abraham loves God and will obey him and follow him. Yes, he is, because he is God. The angel of the Lord is watching. The angel of the Lord is assessing. And frankly, the angel of the Lord became later the son of man. And because he is the son of man, he will judge the entire human race. So he has the right to sit and decide whether we fear God or not. He is the judge of all the earth. It's Jesus Christ. But then what does the angel of the Lord say? Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now who is he? Who is this angel? I thought it was the Lord that told Abraham to sacrifice his son. I thought the, that Abraham was thinking of the Lord when he was going to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice. Well, who is the angel of the Lord who gets to say things like this? You've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Well, let me tell you something. The Heavenly Father is not jealous of the angel of the Lord. Not at all. Because he is his beloved son. And isn't it perfect... Isn't it perfect that it is Jesus that stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac? Isn't it perfect that he says, let me do it. You don't need to kill your son. I'll take his place. I'll do it. And so the voice of the Lord that calls out is the angel of the Lord. And he calls to him to stop him. Thirteenth, we see Isaac released a picture of redemption and also of resurrection. After the angel of the Lord called to Abraham and stopped him, Abraham set his son Isaac free. The time of Isaac's suffering, of being bound, was over. Perhaps Abraham used the very knife that he was going to use to kill his son to set him free. What a beautiful picture that would have been. And I still think it's got to be one of the happiest moments never recorded in Scripture. Abraham and Isaac walking down the mountain. One of the most miserable and difficult ones walking up. What a test, what a trial, what, a, what, a, what a, an incredible moment walking up. But what joy. Did they, did they walk or did they float? What an encounter with God as they came down. And what must that have felt like to cut him free? He's released from his bondage. Well, there's three different ways that this is a picture of our salvation. First, Isaac represents Christ. Isaac is a picture of Christ. And Christ was released from the grave through his resurrection. It says in Acts 2.24, this is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. I love this. Peter said, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Isn't that beautiful? You see the picture like death is, the, is this bondage, these chains, and no one is strong enough to break them, but Jesus was. It was impossible for death to keep Jesus in bondage. He broke the chains of the grave. He set free. Also, it says in Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He's broken the bonds, bonds of death. Isn't that beautiful? But secondly, Isaac also represents us. He represents human beings who are set free because Jesus is going to die in our place. The angel of the Lord calls down and Isaac doesn't have to die. And neither do you who have trusted in Christ. Jesus is going to take your place you don't have to die. And so when he's set free, so are you also set free. You're pictured in Isaac. He's the sinner who's released. He's the sinner who's set free. And so Jesus says this in Luke 4.18 as he began his preaching ministry. 
in the temple in, in Capernaum. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Jesus is there to proclaim freedom for all of those, those of you who are held in bondage, in sin. He says later in John 8, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family. So if the Son sets you free, you will be truly free. You'll be free indeed. Jesus has come to set us free. Set us free from sin's penalty and power. Set us free from everything that sin has ever done to us. It says in Hebrews 2, he's come to set free those who were all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus has come to set us free. And when Isaac was cut and set free, he's a picture of you who are saved through the faith in Christ. Amen. Amen. Thirdly, Isaac represents physical creation. Physical creation is in a kind of bondage now to decay. Physical creation, it says in Romans 8, is enslaved. Why? Because there's a link between man and the world around us. So that the ground was cursed when Adam sinned. So that Noah took a bunch of animals on the ark. God established and makes clear that that link between us and the world. And the world is groaning under a kind of bondage because of our sin. That's what it says in Romans 8. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope that the creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Amen and amen. Creation is in bondage right now. You may think of fall as a beautiful time, and I do. I love the fall. But there's a lot of decay that goes on from the fall on. All the leaves go down and they just all get broken apart. They decay. Creation is in bondage, and it will be in bondage until we are raised from the grave. And when we are raised, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, home of righteousness. What final type are we going to look at today? Look at the next, next week. Verse 13, the ram in the thicket. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. The ram was also a type or picture of Christ. And so was every animal offered in the Old Covenant. All of those animal sacrifices were types or pictures of Christ. They were substitutes. Now, animal sacrifice had been around a long time. This is not the first time that animals are used in sacrifice. Frankly, I find the first time in Genesis 3 when God covered naked Adam and Eve with the skins of animals. Uh, Certainly, he got those from the animals. They didn't give them up willingly. But the animals died so that Adam and Eve might be covered. What a picture of what Christ did. And how Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did for he offered an animal sacrifice. And how Noah gets off the ark and he offers some of those clean animals that he had brought on as a burnt offering. And the Lord smelled the aroma of that sacrifice. It's been done many times. Abraham himself had done it many times. But I think never before up to this point is the substitutionary aspect of animal sacrifice so clear as it is here. Look what it says in verse 13. Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering, look, in the place of his son. Do you see that? The substitution. The ram dies, the son is alive. I I, I can't imagine what, what Isaac must have felt as he looked perhaps into the eyes of that ram. 
as his father was actually going to kill him, and he did kill him. Say, that could have been me. That was me. And the ram has taken my place, and I'm not dead. I'm alive. The ram took my place. And I can walk down the mountain with my father. I'm, I'm alive. The ram is my substitute. But something's amiss, isn't it? I mean, perhaps never before or again would the inadequacy of animal sacrifice be so clear. You've got Isaac, a living, breathing son of Abraham, the promised child, a human being, ready to die. And he is released by an animal, a ram that happens to be caught in a thicket. It's a clear step down, don't you see it? And so David says in Psalm 51, uh, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. No, the sacrifice, it says in Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so what do we have with the ram in the thicket? We have a type waiting fulfillment. We have an animal that's taken the place of a human sinner. A human sinner gets set free, just as David got set free from the death penalty, even though he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered the son or the, the father, or the husband, Uriah, he gets set free. Nathan the prophet says, you will not die. Well, what happened to the death penalty? It's all waiting. It's waiting. It's waiting for the moment when John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of every animal sacrifice that had ever been offered. Next time we're going to talk more about the place of the sacrifice and how God ordained and arranged that. We've seen 14 of the 15 types that we've looked at. What kind of application can we take from it? Well, first, more than anything, I want you to wonder and worship God at the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. 15 types and you could probably find 15 more. A pattern set out. And why? So that you, the sinner, 2,000, 4,000 years later from Abraham and Moriah, 2,000 years later from Christ, can identify Jesus as your personal Savior. It is God's iris scan. Nobody else fit this pattern. Nobody else in history. He's the only one that fit it. Worship God for that. Trust in Christ for salvation. You may have come in here today not knowing much about the gospel. You may have known all of these things, but you've never committed yourself to Christ. You've never yielded to the claim of God on your life. You've never come to grips with the fact that you are a sinner and that you deserve to die. You deserve to go to hell. But you don't want to go to hell. You want a substitute to drink the cup of God's wrath in your place. Well, there is one available. For God made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for you. So that in him, Christ, you might become the righteousness of God. Meditate on these things. Think about them. Deepen your sense of the gospel. Are you discouraged? Well, renew the joy of your salvation by thinking what God has done for you. Is your faith weak or shaken? And faith comes from hearing the message. Hear this again. Let your faith be strong again. Are you struggling with besetting sin? Do you not realize if the Son sets you free, you'll be truly free? You're no longer a slave to sin if you're a child of God. Shake off the cords and walk as a free man, a free woman. You don't need to do that sin ever again. Stand firm in the day of temptation. Are you afraid to obey God in some difficult path of obedience? Follow in the footsteps of your father Abraham, who was willing to lay down his Isaac at the obedience of God. Are you skeptical about the truth of Scripture? How could there be any skepticism when you see these kinds of patterns woven throughout a document like the Old Testament?
How could there be any skepticism? Finally, are you fearful of sickness and death? We are liberated from fear of sickness and death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.